Revelation 18, beginning in verse 1. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illumined with his glory. And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird, where all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, and lest you receive of her plagues. For her sins have reached to heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Render to her just as she rendered to you, and repay her double according to her works. In the cup which she has mixed, mix double for her. In the measure that she has glorified herself and lived luxuriously, in the same measure give her torment and sorrow. For she says in her heart, I sit as queen and am no widow and will not see sorrow. Therefore her plagues will come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judges her. The kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived luxuriously with her will weep and lament for her, when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance for fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come, and the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her, for no one buys their merchandise any more, merchandise of gold and silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen and purple, silk and scarlet, every kind of citron wood, every kind of object of ivory, every kind of object of most precious wood, bronze, iron, and marble, and cinnamon and incense, fragrant oil and frankincense, wine and oil, fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, and bodies and souls of men. The fruit that your soul longed for has gone from you, and all the things which are rich and splendid have gone from you, and you shall find them no more at all. The merchants of these things, who became rich by her, will stand at a distance for fear of her torment, weeping and wailing, and saying, Alas, alas, that great city was clothed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. For in one hour such great riches came to nothing. Every shipmaster, all who travel by by ship, sailors, and as many as trade on the sea, stood at a distance. And crying out when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What is like this great city? They threw dust on their heads and cried out, weeping and wailing and saying, Alas, alas, that great city in which all who had ships on the sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she is made desolate. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence the great city Babylon shall be thrown down and shall not be found any more. The sound of harpists, musicians, flutists, and trumpeters shall not be heard in you any more. No craftsman of any craft shall be found in you any more, and the sound of a millstone shall not be heard in you any more. The light of a lamp shall not shine in you any more, and the voice a bridegroom and bride shall not be heard in you any more. For your merchants were the great men of the earth. For by your sorcery all the nations were deceived. And in her was found the blood of prophets and saints and all who were slain on the earth. And God out his blessing to that reading of his word. Last week we considered the great harlot, whose name is Babylon the Great. And we came to understand that Babylon is a symbol for the world, not merely the people in the world, but rather the world system, the world as it exists in rebellion against God and against Christ. And we saw this great harlot that, although she dresses up in the most attractive clothing possible, just for a brief moment we saw her for what she was, Empty promises based on lies, and ultimately she is riding on the back of Satan. And, and Satan is the one who animates her and gives her ideas and strategies, and she is led as Satan 
brings her along. Now, what can, what's going to happen to her can be summarized rather simply in the words of verse 2 here in our chapter, chapter 18. Babylon the Great has fallen, is fallen. And you could say, well, that's the end of it. Well, Babylon has fallen, but it's not. It's not enough. That is not good enough. We have to know more details. The specifics of the fall have to be explained to us. Because we must remember God's business and all of his works and the works of creation and of providence. His business, his object, his goal is to maximize the display of his glory. And so it is not merely enough to say, for instance, that God created all things. These things must be explained in detail. They must be enumerated. The manner of which this amazing, miraculous creation out of nothing, it must be explained to us in all of its details known because it brings God glory. And it is not merely enough to say that Christ is the Savior. We've got to know all the details. How is it that Christ became the Savior? What is this redemption that he has wrought for his people? What did he accomplish on the cross what were his, the sufferings that he endured on our behalf? Why did he do it? And, and what did it do for those who put their faith in him? All of those things in all of their detail ought to be displayed and thought about and worshipped by God's people. It brings him glory. And so we don't stop with just Babylon the Great has fallen. No, the specifics are explained to us and in their detail. And in this, in this judgment of Babylon, as we see how it goes down... We see just how complete and exacting and how perfectly the punishment matches the crime in justice and in its appropriate nature. But even this is not enough. We also need to hear the reactions of people to this destruction. It's interesting to me how that in our our day of, of news media, when we began to have mass media, first it was just the event itself. But more recently, it's understood that it's not just enough for some great event to happen. We've got to hear the reactions of people. We've got to hear what, what uh, leaders say, and we've got to hear what ordinary people say. Because it, it's not real unless we hear the reactions of people. And that's very often the response. Something is heard, and we want to know what the reaction of people, because it helps us to understand the significance of what's going on. And so, likewise, God in his word, in this great action of his judgment of Babylon, this great uh, harlot, we hear the reactions of two groups. First of all, those who were aligned with the world, those who were part of this system and benefited from it, and their response is to mourn. We'll hear more of that. And then there's also the response of God's people. Now, the substance of that reaction happens more in in chapter 19 and where the great multitude in heaven exalts and and worships God in these things but the instructions of how they ought to respond which in some sense are are even more instructive for us and will certainly provide the backdrop and the foundation for us to understand in the future what goes on in chapter 19 the instructions are given here And the instructions have to do with the way that we ought to think about this world system, about the way we ought to think of the destruction of Babylon. But before this, we know that the message is always conditioned by the messenger. There are many very pathetic and weak messages that are given a false impetus and and uh, a hearing because of the platform that the message is given by the messenger that chooses to, to say this message. And there are some very good messages that sometimes the, the power of the message is taken away because of the messenger. Well, here, neither of these things are true. This true and powerful and wonderful message is, is rightly conditioned by the authority of the messenger. So first we will speak of something of this messenger that in turn, because inasmuch as he reflects the one who sent him, it tells us something about Christ. And in all of this, we must not lose sight that this book is the revelation of Jesus Christ to his church. And so if we don't learn anything at all about Christ, it would surely be a shame. It would surely be contrary to the great intent of this book that we learn something of Christ, even as we learn of this messenger sent on his behalf. 
Well, whatever our situation, this is a message, a message that should not be ignored because this messenger cannot be ignored. This messenger that comes with this great authority and power comes with a message that we ought to hear. And the message is the fall of Babylon. That's our title this morning with these four points. The messenger with great authority, the message of Babylon's fall, the response of the worldly, and the response of the godly. So first, the messenger with great authority, as we have it in verse 1. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. So who is this angel coming down from heaven? Now, I think we should admit that as we go through Revelation, there are many, many, many uh, messengers. And sometimes there are simply angels, and sometimes they are actually Christ. And it's often hard to tell. And it's somewhat hard to tell here, but I think we can be safe to say that it's not Christ. It is just an angel, but one who has been commissioned by Christ to deliver his message. And because he's commissioned by Christ, he reflects some things about Christ that we ought to note. And first of all, it is authority. He is the messenger with great authority, and that is absolutely the case with Christ. He's speaking with the authority of Christ, but the reason why he has this great authority is because he got it from someone. And indeed, you have to wonder how great the authority is of, the, of his master, master, the one who sent him, if even this messenger has such great authority. Well, we need to come to terms with the immense, infinite authority of Christ. Now, we live in an age that doesn't seem to deal very well with authority. We, we have strange thoughts about it. But this is something that we need to hear. This is something that we need. The one thing that the culture has rejected in lawful and right authority is the thing that we most need to hear. Because rather than a situation of anarchy and lawlessness, we have this wonderful authority that is set over us in Christ. And we have an authoritative message that comes along with him. And that's the nature of Christ's message throughout the Gospels. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes, as it says in Matthew 7. Or in Luke, even more so, they were astonished at his teaching for his word was with authority. Luke 4.32. And we see that this lack of authoritative teaching is not something that is new. But rather, even in the ancient world, even among the Jews who thought and imagined that they were teaching the word of God, we see a complete and abject lack of authority. And no wonder. Inasmuch as you step away from the message, inasmuch as you take away from it all or add to it, and the Pharisees were expert at doing these things, you take away from the authority. All the authority is gone. And rather, what do you have left when, you, when, when the authority, if the message, the true authority is gone, all you have is, is manipulation and illegitimate exercise of power. There's wranglings and there's illegitimate exercise of power, but there's no legitimate authority in these things. And of course, it is for that reason that the Gospel of John says when Christ came, he came into a world of darkness. And he came as a great light into this world of darkness to speak authoritatively. Now, Christ has this authority, and he gives that, he delegates that to his messengers. In Matthew twenty-eight eighteen, Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And you see, this is really important. It's only because Christ has this authority that he is then able to commission these uh, apostles and actually the whole church on his behalf to go out and share this authoritative message. One who has this ultimate authority is able to send authoritative messengers to speak with authority his message to the world. So that helps us to understand both the messenger and of Christ. Now, some things that are also pointed to in this general category. Um, notice in verse 8, it says, Therefore her plagues will come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judges her. And as we're thinking about the authority of Christ, we also think about his great strength. Those things come together. We mentioned that in the absence of genuine authority, all the world knows how to do is the raw exercise of power. But in Christ's legitimate and rightful authority, he exercises 
strength and good thing. You see, because we, in our weakness, are in such desperate need of a strong Savior. We've spoken about this many times. Uh, Satan is a strong enemy. He's no weakling. And the whole world is under his deception. That's the problem with Babylon. The whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And we're trapped in this cycle. We're trapped in our sins and the deceptions that the world sends us. And what are we, how are we going to be delivered from that? We need a very, very strong Savior to deliver us from Satan. And even more so, the bigger problem is to pay for our sins. Um, there, there's no light matter. To, uh, as we were speaking at Christianity Explored Extra, uh, we're trying to define the human problem, and I think sometimes we have a problem defining that problem. We don't really uh, define it rightly, and therefore our solution to the human problem is wrong. It's not l- lack of material wealth. It's not lack of education. It's, it's not any number of those things. Ultimately, our problem is with God himself. Because as we stand in rebellion and against him and we sin against him, we incur the wrath of Almighty God. He's a just and holy God. And our sins demand an eternity in hell. And the only way to be rescued from that is that we have an extremely strong Savior, an infinitely strong Savior who's able to do something about it. And he did on the cross. So Christ is authoritative, and that certainly implies what we had in verse 8, that he's strong. Reminds us, by the way, that uh, of the strong angel back in Revelation 5, a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals. And then also this, this authoritative messenger speaking for the authoritative Jesus Christ, there is glory there. It says the, whole, the earth was illuminated with his glory. What an amazing thought. You, you imagine this dark world and standing there and, and proclaiming his message, there is a glorious angel and the whole earth is just illuminated with his glory. Now we have an a, a example of how this happens, that those who are in the presence of God Almighty take on this shine of his glory. Moses, when he was there on the mountain with with God for 40 days, when he came down from the mountain, and thereafter, whenever he met with God, his face shone so much that he had to have a veil because it was frightening to people to have this, this shining face looking at them. Well, so much more so with his sinless angel in heaven as he speaks and the whole earth is illuminated with his glory. Now, if that's the glory of the angel, if that's the glory of the messenger, how much more so of the real thing? How much more so of Christ? Yes, his messengers sometimes have, like the the moon, a reflected light. And it's a light that can illuminate the whole world in the right conditions. But it's only reflective of a much, much greater source of light, a much, much greater source of glory. Christ himself is the sun and this infinite glory that he has. Well, it tells us just a little bit about Christ but what we should understand from, then, from all this is that this is a message that we ought to hear. This angel who has great authority is speaking and therefore we ought to listen to what he's saying. And so secondly, we think of the message. The message that is so simple, Babylon is fallen. In verse 2, he cried mightily with a loud voice saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. Now, what is the character of that fall? Because that's so much of the rest of this chapter. It has to do with the character of that fall. Well, let's note a few things. First of all, the note, or let's call it A, the nature of this fall exactly fits the crime. There is a correspondence between the nature of what Babylon has been doing and the way that she is being punished. Her situation will be radically opposite from what it had been. As we read in verse 3, Babylon has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. So instead of being a place for the beautiful people, which is what we've been reading thus far in Revelation, a description of the luxury, and something that is reflected even in the morning later on, of the great luxury of the world, rather it becomes a place for hideous monsters, 
Instead of being a place of luxury and sophistication, it becomes a, a desert wasteland uh, to be inhabited only by these terrible creatures. And the rationale is explicitly given to us. We don't have to guess whether there's an element of sort of the punishment fitting the crime. It's given to us explicitly in verse 7. In the measure that she glorified herself and lived luxuriously, in the same measure give her torment and sorrow. Do you see how that goes? In that she had this luxury and glorified herself, now the nature of the crime is to do the opposite. In every way that she was exalted and was in luxury and pleasure, she's now to be humbled and tormented. So the nature of what's going on is that the punishment fits the crime. B, the fall is very timely because her sins have come to a full. It's not before its time. It's not an uh, untimely demise. It is not a situation in which um, she wasn't given a fair chance. Uh, No, it's completely the opposite. We read in verse 5, her sins have reached to heaven and God has remembered her iniquities. And the picture is the sins piling up and piling up and piling up until they finally come to heaven itself and something must be done. Now the idea of sin reaching some critical point at which God then must act is very much like what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. And now the world doesn't want to remember what happens to, to Sodom and Gomorrah, but we ought to because it is the great um, example to us of final judgment. Along with the flood, these things tell us an example of what God does when sin reaches this point and he brings judgment on the world. Well, what he says in Genesis 18.20 is, The Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave, thus I'm going to have to act. Now, you have to, if you know anything about Sodom and Gomorrah, you can, and you know that it didn't start overnight, and you know that these things had been going on for some time, you realize that this was not an untimely action. This was not a precipitous action by God. It was that the sin had reached such an extent and such a height and such a depravity that no just God could, could possibly withhold acting in, in, in his wrath against such a terrible place that did such terrible things to people. Well, it's also like Egypt in Exodus 3.7. The Lord said, I've surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And that's the other element here. This world which has been persecuting God's people for so long has been um, working against the church for so long. God notices Not that he hasn't seen it before, but he sees these things and he reacts. Now, I think when I say that it's not to say that God did not notice the fact that the world was sinning, we have to understand. God sees every last thing that goes on. So it's not at all that, you know, some of us in our organizations, we may not know something is going on until somebody comes up to us and says, do you know about this situation? And we say, no, didn't know about it. Now we'll have to do something about it. God's not in that situation. He doesn't need anyone to tell him anything. He knows it all perfectly well. The difference is, the issue is simply that he is a patient and long-suffering God. When we think about the wrath of God, we have to understand, first of all, his patience. He's long-suffering. Notice in, uh, in, uh, to what he says back a uh, long time ago to Abraham in Genesis 15. In the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. God's going to take action, but in the meantime, he's willing to wait long generations because the iniquity, the sin of a certain group of people is not yet complete. When the sin of the ancient world was complete, he judged it in the great flood. When the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, for, for particular reasons, reached such an incredible, unprecedented, and unacceptable height, God brought judgment. And when the same situation is with the whole world, after many generations, long years, millennia awaiting, God will finally bring justice. It will be this time, though he is long-suffering, when Babylon will reach that point, the whole world. Now, also I notice that the nature, we're thinking about the nature of this fall. We, we've said that it is something that fits the crime. We've said that it's something that reflects the fact that her, the fullness of the sins had reached this critical point. And it's also just because of her 
uh, promotion of spiritual unfaithfulness to the world. It is a, that's her crime, and it is something that demands justice. It says in verse 3, For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. And as last week, we pointed out that this points to idolatry and false religion, that the world system is designed to give us alternatives to the real Christ and to the real gospel. And you say, well, what's, what's so terrible about that? Maybe they just made a mistake. No, no. This is a, uh, no, not just a mere mistake. No, it's bad enough to entertain and to carry on your own idolatry in your own, the privacy of your own home, but far much more so to bring other people into it and vastly much more so to bring the whole world into this false religion, this idolatry that's going to bring them eternal death. These false religions are not something to play with. Idolatry is not something that is harmless. It's something that sends people to hell every day. And therefore, it is just that she ought to be. And her leading millions and billions of people in the false things that will lead to their eternal death, it is right that she'd be called to account for these things. And D, the fall is just because of her bloody persecution of God's people. And we've seen in occasions before, in chapter 10, uh, chapter 13, and in her was found the blood of prophets and saints of all who were slain on the earth. And once again, we find the very same thing mentioned in this chapter. The blood of the prophets and saints was found among her, meaning she is guilty of the persecution and killing of God's people. Well, you wonder about the power of prayer, and we've said that so much of this book of Revelation is actually the outworking of a one particular prayer, one constant prayer that comes from the martyrs in heaven, those who have been slain for their testimony for the word of God, as we had in Revelation 16. How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And so much of this is a response to that. It is a demonstration of how God eventually answers that prayer. This Babylon, this world system that persecutes and kills the saints is eventually brought to justice. She's been getting, a lo- getting on. She's been getting away with it for a long time. But when God's immense patience at last comes to an end, justice will be done. So that's the nature of the fall of Babylon. It is complete, it is appropriate, it is just, it is timely. But third, we need to consider the response of the people in the world. In verse 9, the kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived luxuriously with her will weep and lament for her when they see the smoke of her burning. And in the course of the chapter, we see on several other occasions how the people of the world lament and mourn. Now, the questions to ask, I guess, are these. Who is lamenting Babylon, and why are they lamenting? Who and why? There's a range of people here mentioned, from sailors to merchants, all the way up to kings. So there's a range of classes of people who are mourning. But we see the basic idea in verse 15. The merchants of these things who became rich by her will stand at a distance for fear of her torment, weeping and wailing. The basic answer to the question, who is lamenting, who is mourning, the answer to the question is those who stand to gain from Babylon, those who have the most to lose from the destruction of the world. The reason they are lamenting is just that, because of what they have lost. They don't have any great affection for this personification. We know that the the world is personified as this woman, the harlot Babylon, they don't have any great affection for her personally. What they lament is the loss of these things that they otherwise would have had. Of course, it's in terms of their material wealth. Their material wealth will be gone. It says in verse 11, the, mer- the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her for no one buys their merchandise anymore. And it lists it 
And I might as well just say it, because again, these details bring glory to God. Merchandise of gold and silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen and purple, silk and scarlet, every kind of citron wood, every kind of object of ivory, every kind of object of most precious wood, bronze, iron and marble, cinnamon and incense, fragrant oil and frankincense, wine and oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, sheep, horses, chariots, and bodies and souls of men. What isn't covered here? Every element, every category, every degree of wealth that you could possibly have in this earth, that is what they're weeping about. Because that is what the world offered to them, and that is what is now lost, the material wealth. But in a larger sense, it's not just their material wealth, it's all of their reward, all the things that they counted on, all of their investment is lost. It says in verse 14, The fruit that you're so long for has gone from you. And all the things that are rich and splendid have gone from you. And you shall find them no more at all. They were invested fully into the world. You know the the verses that we've spoken of. That where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And also in the Sermon on the Mount. uh, Seek first the kingdom of of God, and then all these things will be added unto you, because that's the way that it should go. Your investment, uh, you should be, is in eternal things. That's the way it should work. You shouldn't care so much about things that happen in this world, because eternity is much, much, much longer. And therefore, you're in, and God's people, our investment is in heaven and in eternity. But that is not the case with the people of the world. All their investment all their treasure and therefore all of their heart is in this present world and when this world then is threatened and ultimately destroyed they have nothing at all now you see that because we can't fail to notice that their mourning is is not just superficial it is not just for a show this is real mourning this is deep this is heartfelt Verse 19, they threw dust on their heads and cried out weeping and wailing and saying alas, alas, a great city The reason why this morning is so real is because they were pinning their hopes on this place. They were invested in this place. And where their treasure was, their heart was also. And therefore they mourn the loss. When the world is destroyed, they will lose absolutely everything. And that's an emotional as well as a material loss. This, their heart's great delight, their pride and joy, it's all cast down and destroyed. What a terrible thing it is. Now, incidentally, I should say it's made all the worse. We ask, you know, who's mourning and why are they mourning? I think uh, the totality of their loss obviously explains every bit of their investment, their heart and soul and everything in their lives have been invested in this world. And when it's lost, of course, they will mourn greatly, but it's made all the worse for the suddenness of it. And we see that mentioned in a couple of places. Uh, verse 10, for in one hour your judgment has come. And then likewise in verses 16 and 17, alas, for in one hour such great riches came to nothing. Now if the Bible tells us one thing about the end, we can be absolutely sure of this. People, the world, will not be ready for the end of the world. We may not know every other detail, but you can be absolutely certain that the people of the world will not be ready for it when it happens. And no doubt when it happens, there will be an element of regret and mourning because they had hoped for a little bit more time. It's all gone in a single hour. We were hoping we'd have a little bit of time. But the answer is, there won't be any any, uh, allowance There won't be any more margin to do anything else, to make alternative plans, to try something else, to try to uh, change your investment from the world into heaven. It's too late. In a single hour, this great collapse happens. You know how it happens in the world, right? If you know that Greece is going down the tubes, maybe you can pull your money out of it if you've invested money. You might lose something, but you can at least invest it in a place that's more solid before it goes down the tubes completely. But if that collapse had happened in a single hour, there'd be no chance for that. Well, that's what is being pictured for us here. Those who have their investment in the world will have no chance at the end to do anything else 
or their loss will be total and sudden. That's why they mourn. Well then, fourthly, finally, the response of God's people. Now most of the response actually comes in the next chapter, but we have some instructions here in the way that we ought to respond. And the first response is just simply to get out. Verse 4, And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, and lest you receive of her plagues. For her sins have reached to heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. That's the first response. Get out. The second response is actually to participate, then, in the judgment. In verse 6, Render to her as she has rendered to you, and repay her double according to her works. In the cup which she has mixed, mixed double for her. In the measures that she has glorified herself and lived luxuriously, in the same measure, give her torment and sorrow. And it's speaking to God's people. You know, a very, very good commentator, that I rely on quite frequently, hesitates to say what this passage so plainly says, which is that God's people are being encouraged to exact vengeance on the world. And you can imagine why he might be cautious to say that. Because it seems to run counter to all the many declarations in God's word that we should not seek to have vengeance on people. Well, one little problem here is that we're forgetting the distinction between our current state and the future state. Just think about the situation of Christ, okay? Christ came and served in the the state of humiliation. That means that when he came to this earth, he laid aside all the tokens and the outward display of his glory and his power. He, he had these things inherently, but he laid aside all the, the outward exercise of them for a time in order that he might come as a servant and, and serve in these ways. And we, of course, he said things like, I'm not, I haven't come here to judge. Yet, on the other hand, he says, I'm definitely coming back to judge. Well, that's the situation back in his state of humiliation. He didn't come to bring specific judgment. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. Well, one day it will be. The new heavens and the new earth, it certainly will be. But that, at that point, you see, his state of humiliation meant that these things weren't being exercised. Well, just so it is exactly like that with God's own people. And we are told not to judge. We're not been set over judges yet. Yet. But one day, we will be judges on the day of judgment. When we, as it were, lay aside our state of humiliation and we come in a state of exaltation with Christ, as he comes to judge, so we come to judge. As he comes to exercise authority over this world, then so we come to exercise authority over this world. And that's the situation in 1 Corinthians uh, 6 2. Paul speaks as if all the Corinthians ought to know this. He, he doesn't speak to them something new. He speaks as if they already knew the reality uh, that they would participate in the judgment. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Verse 3. Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things pertain to this life? You see, as Christ comes in his, spirit, his, his state of exaltation to judge the whole world, so we, his people, also participate in that judgment. So our response, first of all, is to get out, of course. But then, in the end, when this comes, that we participate with Christ in judging the world. And the third response is that we ought to rejoice. Verse 20. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. Now, unlike the world, unlike the people of the world, the worldly people who are invested in these things, we have every reason to rejoice. We have every reason to rejoice. As unlike them, we don't have much investment in this world. Thankfully, God doesn't always leave that to our own prerogative, our own inclinations. In various ways, simply because the world persecutes Christians, does not like Christians, we're not given the very top positions very often. We're not given the very height of wealth very often. The Bible says not many rich, not many powerful, not many wise have been called. And there's various reasons in God's wisdom for why this is the case. We don't go artificially try to disqualify ourselves from these things. It just 
on the whole, it's the way that God deals with us. And it's not such a terrible thing. Because if we were given great riches and authority in this world, we would surely be tempted to make this world our great investment. We would surely be tempted to throw all of our heart and soul into these present things. But God, in his mercy, sometimes keeps us from it in order that our hearts might be on him and on the things of eternity. And so when that great day comes, we don't need to mourn. I remember a rather sad case of... um, don't really know how the story ends, to be honest, but uh, of a, a friend of mine and uh, Christian uh, Union and University, and um, there was a discussion about the uh, end of the world, and there was a sort of acknowledgement that it's probably going to happen, that Christ is going to come someday, but there was a great sadness, uh, because there were yet great ambitions that this person wanted. There were career ambitions, or even family ambitions, and it was considered... Uh, uh, there was a great hope expressed that this end wouldn't come until all those ambitions had been fulfilled. Well, we can understand how that might be, but it ought not to be. The heart of God's people ought to be to rejoice when this world is brought to justice because our treasures have not been put into this world. And however many good things, and God gives us many good things in this world, They are absolutely nothing compared to what he gives us in eternity. And therefore, the heart of the Christian should be to rejoice when this great event happens. I have just two applications now for the way we should think about these things and apply them to ourselves. The first is just to think about the authority of the gospel. The authority of the gospel. We said at the beginning that Christ has authority. When he spoke to the people, he spoke with authority and that his messengers are given authority. This angel has a great authority and those who declare his gospel speak with authority. Now it's nothing in them, certainly nothing in me inherently. It is rather a byproduct simply of the authority of Christ and the fact that the message, when it's spoken in its purity and fidelity, has this Immense authority, of which not even the weakest of human vessel can really take away from. As long as he says it in all of its truth and doesn't take anything away from it or add to it, it has this immense authority. That's why in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, now when they saw the boldness, this is speaking of the Jewish leaders, very senior leaders of the community, in great authority, they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, and they marveled. You see, they were fishermen, these ordinary people from the north, by the way, and the, the sophisticated people of the great metropolis in the south didn't think much of them. And when they saw the boldness, though, this immense boldness and authority by which they spoke, they marveled. And you know what they realized? They realized that they had been with Jesus. They realized they'd been with Jesus because those who are sent on his behalf, those who have been with him, take on that measure of authority. Not anything personal. Not like the way the world has authority. The authority that inheres in Christ and in those who declare his faithful, faithfully his message. Now I'd say also, along with the messengers, we have to understand that this message is one of authority. Acts 17.30, you know, I understand that if, if you were outside of Christ, if you weren't yet a believer, and you had been exposed sometimes to certain methods of evangelism, you might be under the impression that this is a sort of try it or don't try it, doesn't really matter sort of message. You, that you might sort of equate with the things you get under your door, the mass mailings that have these great offers, and you feel quite at liberty to take the things and throw them away. You could be forgiven if you thought that way. Because sometimes God's people, and they, they are mistaken in this, sincere but mistaken, they speak the gospel message as if that were the case. But it's not. It isn't. This is what it says in Acts 17.30. In times of ignorance, God overlooked. That's his patience. But he now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this
to all by raising him from the dead. He commands all men everywhere to repent and to believe in Jesus Christ. And that means you. That includes you. This is not a take it or if you don't like it uh, message, you can just crumple it up and throw it in the rubbish bin. This is not something to think about and consider other options. This is God's own command to the entire world to repent. That's the message of authority. And the specific connection, the specific authority of that message is connected with the reality of the coming judgment. So in the very context as we think of this coming judgment of the entire world, this judgment which is going to be total and complete and sudden, on a day and an hour that no one knows is coming, this is the thing that gives impetus to repentance. Because this day of judgment is coming, because he's appointed a day which he will judge the world in righteousness, you ought to repent. Now, if the thought occurs to your mind that perhaps this is just a, a fairy tale, and I don't have to listen to it because it's a false claim, just keep in mind the, in the, the proof given. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. The, the reality of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is not something that can be ignored and it's not something that can be denied. The very worst and most hateful of pagan minds have sought to find some way of disproving it and they can't do it. It is just a historical fact. And all throughout Acts, people speak and all throughout the rest of the New Testament, people speak of the, the resurrection as if, and this is quite true, as if everyone knew it to be the case, as an undeniable reality. And whether you're there in Jerusalem or you're in Athens or anywhere else in the world, the great proof of the coming day of judgment, the great proof of the gospel is the fact of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And because of these things, the authority of the gospel is unlimited and absolute. And when you hear it, your responsibility is to believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And you will be spared all these things. And you'll be given much, much, much more. That's the authority of the gospel message. And the second application is just that simple thing that I didn't really develop as we said it, which is to get out. When God is speaking to his own people, he says, get out, get out of there. Make a clean break from the world. That's what it means. The main problem is the fact that God will ultimately judge the world, right? One day this judgment is coming and therefore you don't want to be around there when it happens. And I don't mean physically. There's no, it's not like becoming a monk that we leave the physical world and go off to somewhere else. I mean psychologically and spiritually you leave the world. And so that's the, the main thing. You don't want to be around there. But there's another element of which it says because you're going to share in her plagues. Inasmuch as you're sharing in the world, you're going to share in her plagues. And you know those plagues have a little foretaste even now. That's what it says in Romans chapter 1. The wrath of God is being revealed against all unrighteousness right now. That God in his justice is actually bringing a measure of this judgment against people in the world even now in accordance with the way the things that they do. Well, I'll just read from Romans chapter 1. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, this is verse 21, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. You see how that is? It's idolatry. That's the very thing that the world is selling to us, some sort of false religion, some sort of thing that's supposed to give us pleasure and fulfillment, something that you throw your life into and worship, and it's supposed to give you these wonderful things. Therefore, what does God do about it? Well, ultimately, God's going to bring them into judgment. But even now, therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature instead of the creator. And verse 28, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do these things that are not fitting. And the point of these things is inasmuch as we share in the world, we share in her plagues. 
and the great plague of this world is in the involvement of all these forms of idolatry is a debased mind, is a debased heart. Are the symptoms, and I don't need to tell you this, that those who are most involved in the idolatries of this world are debased. And there are terrible things that happen because of these things. We don't have to wait for the final judgments of the world to see that those who share in the world share in her plagues. We see it every day around us, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our workplaces, of those who share in these plagues by this foretaste of God's judgment upon them and giving them over to this corruption. So we ought to get out. We ought to get out. We ought to repent. We ought to put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ because he has much better promises. Not promises that are false. Not promises that turn out to be empty and only last for a few moments and and then it's going to all come to an end. We don't want to have to be like those people who are saying, alas, alas, all the things I'd hoped for come to nothing. But no, we get to be with those who in the last rejoice and give thanks and praise because their place is to be with Christ forever and ever as we will soon see in the rest of this wonderful book of Revelation. So let's pray. Lord, your word is so very clear to us. And however dull our hearts might be because of our own sin, we pray that you'd open them enough so that we might see Christ in these things and we might see the purity of his gospel, we might see the clarity of the decision before us. In the greatest possible contrast, we have the situation of the world and those who who, uh, abide by the world system and of Christians, those who put their faith in Christ. And these situations could not be any more different Even now, there are so many differences as you rescue people from the plagues that you're visiting on the world in a foretaste of judgment. But ultimately, Lord, the greatest of distinctions and differences. And Lord, we cannot open one another's hearts for these things. But we know that you can. And we pray, Lord, that you'd help us to do these things that are right and appropriate. We might put our faith in Christ and be saved. That we might... Get out of this world destined for destruction. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.